We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. So nice to hear all the voices in the fellowship out there. We have... Give me a few minutes to warm up. I was just telling one of the brothers, it's so good to, to hear more chatter before service because there's more people. And uh, two years on now, we're, yes, well, the, the front row will hopefully be filled soon. But, um, you know, two years on from this pandemic, it seems like uh, maybe with spring coming, we will uh, have the little fog lifted and be able to uh, see a brighter day in that regard, although some people in the world are not seeing a very bright day today, as you are aware with the news uh, these past 10 or 11 days, so we continue to pray for those ones in Europe and Ukraine especially and all that that's going on. So it's quite a, quite a thing to go from one trial to the next in the world, you know, and just they keep coming, don't they? And that's how God has ordained it to be until the Lord returns, and we're looking for that very, uh, very eagerly. Tonight we have our communion service at 6 o'clock, and I'll be speaking more about the matter of discipleship. We began that uh, message a couple of weeks ago, and I really only got uh, maybe a third of the way through what I had, and now I've prepared yet more, so uh, you're really in for it now. <laughs> yeah, we need it. We need to hear what the, the Word of God says about Christians and um, <clears throat> disciples, which is saying the same thing. I repeat myself, uh, Christians are disciples, and uh, we're looking forward to that tonight. So that's the Lord's table. Maybe take a few minutes this afternoon to prepare your heart for that and uh, make sure that you're walking with the Lord in a good way. Our reading this morning is in Ezekiel 27, lengthy lamentation here for a place called Tyre, T-Y-R-E often associated with Sidon. Ezekiel, the prophet, chapter 27. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Now, son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyre, and say to Tyre, You who are situated at the entrance of the sea, merchant of the peoples on many coastlands, thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Your borders are in the midst of the seas, your builders have perfected your beauty. They made all your planks of fir trees from Sinir. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make you a mast of oaks from Bashan. They made your oars. The company of Asherites have inlaid your planks with ivory from the coasts of Cyprus. Fine embroidered linen from Egypt was what you spread for your sail. Blue and purple from the coasts of Elisha was what covered you. Look at the, the opulence of this, the luxury, the riches. Inhabitants of Sidon and Arvad were your oarsmen. Your wise men, O Tyre, were in you. They became your pilots, elders of Gebal, and its wise men were in you to caulk your seams. All the ships of the sea and their oarsmen were in you to market your merchandise. Those from Persia, Libya, sorry, Lydia and Libya were in your army as men of war. They hung shield and helmet in you. They gave splendor to you. Men of Arvad with your army were on your walls all around, and the men of Gamad were in your towers. They hung, on their, they hung their shields on your walls all around. They made your beauty perfect. Tarshish was your merchant because of your many luxury goods. They gave you silver, iron, tin, and lead for your goods. Javan, Tubal, and Meshech were your traders. They bartered human lives and vessels of bronze for your merchandise. Those from the house of Togarma traded for your wares with horses, steeds, and mules. The men of Dedan were your traders. Many isles were the market of your hand. 
They brought you ivory tusks and ebony as payment. Syria was your merchant because of the abundance of goods you made. They gave you for your wares emeralds, purple, embroidery, fine linen, corals, and rubies. Judah and the land of Israel were your traders. They traded for your merchandise wheat of minneth, millet, honey, oil, and balm. Damascus was your merchant because of the abundance of goods you made, because of your many luxury items with the wine of Helbon and with white wool. Dan and Javan paid for your wares, traversing back and forth. Rod iron, cassia, and cane were among your merchandise. Didan was your merchant in saddlecloths for riding. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar were your regular merchants. They traded with you in lambs, rams, and goats. The merchants of Sheba and Ra'ama were your merchants. They traded for your wares, the choicest spices, all kinds of precious stones and gold. Haran, Kana, Eden, the merchants of Sheba, Assyria, and Kilmad were your merchants. These were your merchants in choice items, in purple clothes, and embroidered garments, and chests of multicolored apparel, and sturdy woven cords which were in your marketplace. The ships of Tarshish were carriers of your merchandise. You were filled with very and very glorious in the midst of the seas. Your oarsmen brought you into many waters, but the east wind broke you in the midst of the seas. Your riches, wares, and merchandise, your mariners and pilots, your caulkers and merchandisers, all your men of war who are in you, and the entire company which is in your midst will fall into the midst of the seas on the day of your ruin. The common land will shake at the sound of the cry of your pilots. All who handle the oar, the mariners, all the pilots of the sea will come down from their ships and stand on the shore. They will make their voice heard because of you. They will cry bitterly and cast dust on their heads. They will roll about in ashes. They will shave themselves completely bald because of you. Gird themselves with sackcloth and weep for you with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing. In their wailing for you, they will take up a lamentation and lament for you. What city is like Tyre, destroyed in the midst of the sea? When your wares went out by sea, you satisfied many people. You enriched the kings of the earth with your many luxury goods and your merchandise. But you are broken by the seas in the depths of the waters. Your merchandise and the entire company will fall in your midst. All the inhabitants of the isles will be astonished at you. Their kings will be greatly afraid and their countenance will be troubled. The merchants among the peoples will hiss at you. You will become a horror and be no more forever. Well, do you suppose it was merely their riches that caused God to turn against them? Not at all. It was their idolatry and ungodliness. We shall see as we come along in our readings. All right, let's turn our Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians. We're about halfway through the letter, and uh, if you would allow me the liberty, I'll do what Paul does in chapter 3. I'll say, now finally, but actually there's much more to go. (laughs) Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. He says, we're just going to address the first three verses of the chapter here. Beware of dogs, he says, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Let's trust the Lord to help us this morning as we look at the text of Scripture in Philippians chapter 3. Hopefully you have your Bible and we'll turn there Yes, um, and uh, follow along. I do have the text, however, in the notes. If you grabbed a bulletin on your way in, you do see the notes there, uh, the, the text rather in the introduction, and you see it's in the box. And what I did was, for the benefit of one of our uh, men who has uh, just entered this past week into the study of uh, diagramming the text of Scripture, you know who you are, uh, I put a diagram there for you. Um, and I bolded some words that are key words, uh, most of them verbs, in the text uh, of Scripture there. He starts out by saying, finally, my brethren, rejoice. And then he instructs them to beware three times. And then he speaks about the believer, the character of the true believer who worships God in the Spirit, rejoices in Christ, and has no confidence in the flesh. And so that really kind of lays out 
the main ideas of the text, and that's all we're going to go over this morning. I'll try to explain it and help you understand it, especially some of these, uh, you know, bewares. These are very tough words, aren't they? But Paul has a very important reason for, for using them. But he starts out with the command to the believers, I want you to rejoice. And he modifies it with this phrase, in the Lord. When Paul says, finally, here, that there's been much too much debate about this word because, you know, everybody wants to see it in like the last two verses of the text. Excuse me for a moment. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. You know, as if Paul doesn't know that he's about to write two more entire chapters or perhaps that Philippians is actually made up of, of three or four separate letters, and this is the very end of one of the letters. It's all just, it's, not, it's, it's unnecessary. Um, that maybe the translation of the word as finally is, is unfortunate. It really means like something like, as for the rest, or in addition, or beyond that, or as for what remains to be said. That's really all it means, so we don't have to get too worked up about this word as if it's some kind of attack on uh, biblical inspiration that somebody doesn't know how much more they're going to write. But to, the, to this point in the book, we skip past that now, Paul has urged the church to be like-minded, to be humble, to be obedient, to avoid complaining, to avoid arguing, to hold steadfastly to the word of life and to be uh, ministers of it. He's shown by the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus that there are people who are watching out for others uh, much like people look out for their own things, how you know we're concerned naturally about our own affairs, our own business, our own health, our own homes, our own finances, our own families. These men were also considerate of others, and particularly of the church at Philippi that was planted some years earlier by the Apostle Paul under God's work through him. Along with all these other duties... Uh, in addition, they were to give themselves to the work of Christ, and we'll see more about that today. But along with all of those other duties, they are to rejoice in the Lord. Now, Paul has already modeled for us joy. If you look in Philippians 1.4, he says, Always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. Chapter 1, verse number 18 only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. In chapter 4 and verse number 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, still stand fast in the Lord, beloved, and he is asking them to rejoice again throughout the text of, of the Scripture. Uh, 4.10 also, he says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished. And then he not only models it himself, but he also tells the other uh, believers uh, there, and I want you to live joyfully. Chapter 1 and verse number 25, he says, Being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and what? Joy of faith. Uh, chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, where we were not too long ago, he says, Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Amen. Do you understand what he means by that? If I'm, if I'm, I'm going to die, if I'm being poured out as a last drink offering on top of your sacrifice and service or faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Most of us would have trouble perhaps with that. But we shouldn't, as believers, we should come to the point where, like verse 18 says, for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Chapter 2, 28 and 29, he says, uh, regarding Epaphroditus, I sent him more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice. There's kind of a circumstantial rejoicing, like a very happy circumstance that uh, would be their portion. He says, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. And then finally, 4, four chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And so very common it is to uh, interpreters to look at the book of Philippians and pull out that theme of joy. I said last week that we shouldn't just leave it there. We should also talk about the themes of humility and like-mindedness and 
selfless service, very important themes in the book. But you can see why a guy like J. Dwight Pentecost would write a book titled The Joy of Living, The Joy of Being a Christian, because of all these references to to joy. Whatever the circumstances that might arise, whatever the difficulties, whatever the disappointments, whatever the illnesses, whatever the challenges, whatever the persecutions, whatever the interpersonal problems, all of that is to be subordinated to a deep-seated joy in the Lord. Our joy is supposed to be focused, and here's why it, hap- why it can happen. It's focused on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, isn't that true? Don't rejoice that you cast out the demons, but that your name is written in heaven. The scripture tells us that rejoicing is in the Lord. We're not just to be happy clappy, you know, uh, put paste on a, a smiley face uh, just to get by, but to have a joy that is inside of us. The, the, the Lord is the realm in which our joy exists. He's the realm in which we find joy. He is constant and faithful and good and kind And he gives us an anchor point for the joy that we can have amid the vexing circumstances of life. I'm kind of naturally, in in many ways, a half-empty kind of person, like I'll see the, the downsides of things. We have to remember that our joy is in the Lord. Some of us are half fullers, some of us are half emptiers, some of us are all emptiers. You need to tune up your joy because your joy is in the Lord. If you're focused on, you know, COVID and Ukraine and, and the taxes and the government's mess-ups and everything and the immorality and all of that sort of thing, you're going to lose sight of the fact that your joy is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scripture commands us to rejoice in the Lord. You say, well, I can't do that. I cannot do that. That's what so many people think. Like, I cannot manufacture in me because I feel down. I feel badly right now. And I know what you mean. But if you focus on the Lord, your joy can be made full because He is worthy of that. And He outshines all of the darkness that's around us. And so I want to encourage you this morning to think through this Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And the Philippians had some issues that were severe enough that they could easily be, we might say, excused from having this joy. But no, God tells them through Paul, rejoice in the Lord. Be joyful in Him. Now, being joyful is, is a little different than being kind of giddy, you know, happy. It's, it's, if there is a bad circumstance, you can still be glad. You know, our, our sister... Kelly just went to be with the Lord. Um, some of you know her and certainly know of her because we've asked prayer for her. She's, she was Dan Lee's wife, a pastor in the area. And, uh, you know, they can have a deep-seated joy in the midst of sadness. And you might think, well, how does that work? Well, because they know that they can sorrow without being hopeless because of what the Lord has done for them. And so, yes, even at the same time that they... And you can imagine what a a funeral for a believer looks like. Tears and laughter at the same time. You know? You know that that person... You don't want them. You want them to be back, but you don't want them to be back because you'd never ask somebody to come back from heaven you know, to come back to this kind of wretched place. Even so, we have the great joy of what God has, has done for us. So our, our joy is in the Lord. Our, our rejoicing is in that sphere, in that realm. And I want to encourage you to focus on that. The rejoicing is contextually next door to where Paul says, I'm writing the same things to you. And the warning in verse 2 that it seems that the... Philippians were having or about to have some serious problem in the midst of their church. Paul was encouraging them to rejoice in the Lord even in the midst of those difficulties. Their joy or boast was 
was in the Lord. And by the way, that contrasts with what we see in the end of verse number three, in the flesh. Notice that Paul is really setting a contrast for us and saying, where's your focus? Is it on the Lord or is it in the flesh? We'll look at that again in a moment. So he says then, uh, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And then verse 2, the beware passage. That all comes together under my second heading, Roman numeral 2, to beware of false teacher and so false teachers. rather. And he tells us that he, in introducing this, he's writing to them some of the same things that he's talked to them about before. The warning of these false teachers. He's, in, he's, he's apparently repeating some of the things that he's written or said to them before. He's about to give them a warning about these false teachers who distort the gospel. Now, he mentions some of these in 128. Uh, he talks about uh, being not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. You have to kind of picture where the Philippians existed. They existed in a city that was a city of Rome. They existed in a city which, you know, by and by, over the course of time, you had certain, several Roman emperors who actively persecuted the church. They would be like if we today were meeting despite a command from the city or state government that we could not assemble. Or if you do assemble in the name of Christ, you will be carted off to jail. They had that threat, that kind of threat hanging over them. I don't know if it was every Sunday or every day of the week, but they had it. And so you have to think about it. You know, like, oh, you're supposed to be closed. You can't worship. You can't meet together. You can't work, certainly not in the name of Christ. He's an, a competing king to the Caesar. And so Christianity is a no-go in that society. They were facing adversaries. And so he's writing to them some things in their conflict and suffering that was happening to the church. Now, for Paul, he says, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious. Uh, it's not troublesome. He doesn't feel upset about reviewing the truth that he shared with them before. Uh, he, what he's saying is, I am not lazy. I'm not indolent. I'm not shrinking from the work of reviewing this from you. And just because it is review, it doesn't mean that he's, he's, you know, he's lazy in the sense of not coming up with new material. Okay? So he's not, he's not like, oh, I've got to tell them again. Or thinking, boy, if I tell them the same things again, they're going to be thinking, boy, he's a lazy apostle because he doesn't come up with anything new. Well... I've always wanted to do a study somehow kind of collecting the, the major teachings of Scripture, kind of categorize them and show you that there is, a, there is a finite kind of set of things that we need to know that are truths that are fundamental, um, but th th you can't like keep trying to reinvent the, the wheel in Christianity. There is a wheel, and we go with the wheel. You know, that has the spokes, it has the rim, it has the strength, it has the ability to carry us along. But you can't, you can't say, well, it's, just, it's getting boring here. I mean, it's all the same stuff. God knows how we need that reminder and that review. He's not being lazy at all. First, he needs to repeat it or feels the need to repeat it because it's so important. I mean, how, how can you like say, you know, I know the truth that Jesus died for my sins and he rose again from the dead and just kind of say, well, okay, that's passe. That's, you know, put that in the rearview mirror. Forget about that. You can't ever forget about that. It's so important. Second, repetition comes with new insights, new illustrations, new approaches that help people to understand those same truths. And finally, repetition is important because there are new disciples coming along all the time who need that. I mean, as I look now with the length of ministry that I've had, many of you have been here for a long time. There are some who just started, some visiting just today, some just in the last few weeks, some who are young people who are just coming into the adult ministries of the church just within the last few months. 
So we have to continue to go over and over these things again. And I'm constantly amazed. Sometimes I think, man, I've already preached this like 10 or 15 years ago. And then I look at it again and I say, boy, that was inadequate. I need to work on that. And, and that's the result you have here. I don't, did I put the revised? Yeah, from April 20th of 2011, so 11 years ago practically. And this is probably a time and a half, again, is what it, you know, it was before. Uh, more detail, more insight, and things like that. But it's all repetition over the same verses. Repetition, he says, not tedious, but for you it is what? It is safe. On the recipient side, it's a safe thing for us to go over the truth again. It shouldn't be tedious for us. We shouldn't shrink back from it. We shouldn't be lazy about it. It's more than a mere mental reminder, too, by the way. It's a safety factor. It's a safeguard to help the hearer not to fall into the trap of the devil and false teachers. It's like every time you get onto an airplane, they tell you, locate the exit nearest you. Be aware that it may be behind you. And you pray to God at that moment that you never have to use that advice. <laughs> right? But you may. Parachutes. Is that what's under the seat? No, that's not a parachute. Yeah, that's a life vest. No parachutes. Well, you, you know, or, or how do you use a fire extinguisher? I heard a story of one time a guy who didn't know how to use the fire extinguisher. There was the fire, there was he, uh, he was, and here's the fire extinguisher. He takes the fire extinguisher and throws it into the fire. <laughs> you got to know, it, it didn't work, actually, you know. You've got to know, how, you know what the safeguards are. You have to know the safety equipment. Um, otherwise, you fall into a, a problem. Uh, what do you do if you get a caustic chemical on your skin or your eyes? Where, you know, in the lab, where is the washing station where you have to go? Where are the neutralizing chemicals or whatever has to be done in order to save you from being you know, damaged or burned up somehow? In, in this case, you know, it's... It's not an insurance policy that you hope you never have to use. It's more important than an insurance policy. It's safety training that you will use. This safeguard is necessary because, as Peter says, as there were false prophets among the people, there will be false teachers among you. Count on it. We have them all over the place today, friends, and so it's very important, not tedious, not unnecessary for us to be reviewing the truths that Paul goes over here and as we go through the rest of Scripture together as well. Take, for, the, uh, for example, the teaching that we just made on rejoicing. What does the world tell you to do? The world tells you to fear, to be dissatisfied, to complain, and, and so on and so forth. It doesn't tell you to rejoice like God does in Christ. Now, he goes on. Here's what he's reminding them about, the warning against false teachers. Paul commanded the church to beware. I put the little sign there, warning, beware of dog, which is almost one of the words that he phrases he uses here, to watch out for something hazardous to their spiritual well-being. And he repeats it three times, beware, beware, beware. It refers to false teachers generally and to what we call Judaizing false teachers specifically in these cases. I'll explain that in a moment. I, I, I do not see Paul here trying to call out three specific or different types of false teachers. I think these are three descriptions of the same group that is troubling the Philippian church. And it seems that what happened was wherever Paul went, and sometimes places where Paul didn't yet go, there were these groups of false teachers that were taking this errant doctrine. They would follow after him and say, well, actually, it's this way. You know, they'd adapt the gospel to their viewpoint, or they'd go to a new place and try to gain a following for themselves. And it was all just a distortion of the gospel that, that had to do with having confidence in the flesh, and as opposed to confidence in the Word of God and in the person of Christ. Two contrasting doctrines are set forth here, and he, he puts it very bluntly, I'll say, but not without precedent. He says, beware of dogs, evil workers, and the mutilation. 
you say, well, how does he, I mean, that's not very nice. <laughs> that's not very politically correct what he's saying there. Well, you know, the Lord Jesus used terms like this. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Yep. Peter uses it like the dog returns to its, and the swine to its wallowing in the mire, or the sow, rather, to, the, to the, her wallowing in the mire. Um, Isaiah uses the term dog to refer to false prophets. What are these dogs? He's using this term to picture false teachers as filthy scavengers. If you go to a place where they don't have leash laws, or they don't have, um, you know, kind of like we do here, you know, in Ann Arbor, say, uh, they have dogs everywhere. They're stray dogs. They're all over the place. They, they scavenge. They do what, you know, what dogs naturally do. They're dirty animals, and those places often are dirty, you know, kind of like we would think like, boy, that's kind of a trash dump. And some places are like that. False teachers are pictured as that way. Evil workers are opposite of workers of righteousness, and then the mutilation, the word mutilation. These are set against those who worship God in the Spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus. There's that rejoicing again, and then have no confidence in the flesh. So you've got the three descriptions of false teachers. You've got the three descriptions of those who are in the Lord. Now, the word mutilation here, what is this? It's a play on words for the word circumcision. They both end in the same uh, last few letters of the word in Greek. What the false teachers were advocating was not what Paul will talk about in Galatians chapter 5. He says something to the effect of emasculation or castration, but what it was was an external and religiously useless cutting away of flesh with no effect on one's relationship to God. It had no, nothing to do with true circumcision as a sign of a circumcised or regenerated heart. The word mutilation here means a cutting in pieces as opposed to circumcision, which was a cutting around of the foreskin flesh as it was removed in that Jewish ritual. The false teachers did the same physical ritual, but they associated it with false teaching. And so it was meaningless for real religion and undermined the work of Christ. Pentecost put it this way in his commentary, beware of the cutters, the cutters. Accepting circumcision meant in that, under that false teaching, accepting that cutting meant that you were agreeing to try to be a law keeper to please God. Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 3, Paul says, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. What you're doing is that then became a symbol of you accepting a false doctrine, which was this works law-keeping thing where you said, I have got to keep the law of Moses, circumcision and everything else associated with it. And Paul's saying, if you, if you accept that sign, then you are obligating yourself to that, that system. That's what he was trying to get across to the Galatians. And here again to the Philippians. He says, beware of the mutilation. I, I'm going backwards now in the list. Beware of evil workers. <clears throat> Echoes the words of Christ in Matthew 7, 23. You know, depart from me, you who work lawlessness. Um, first John, well, John chapter 7, you know, the, the children of the devil are just evil workers. First John 3, 2, or 3, 12 rather, says something similar uh, to that effect. I'll let you look those up. The work that they're doing is moving people backwards away from God. You know, it may not be that they... You know, they're bank-robbing, diabolical savages. Instead, it, this refers to religious-sounding but false teaching combined with keeping of the law, they think, to please God. And this doctrine confused people and made them disciples of something other than the Lord Jesus. They were disciples of the Judaizers, disciples of this circumcision doctrine, disciples of this works-based system of Righteousness. We're going to see next week, Lord willing, Paul abandon all of that. 
He said, I, I used to think, I used to think, man, all that stuff is great. I have it all. I'm a Pharisee and a tribe of Benjamin, Israelite, and keep the law and everything. And then he realized that doesn't do anything for anybody. It doesn't save anybody. It doesn't sanctify anybody. Then the word uh, dogs, beware of, of dogs, was stream, extremely negative, politically incorrect, obviously. It's referring, uh, Jews actually used dog to refer to Gentiles. It has a racial, or what I might rather say, an ethnic component to it, an ethnic component. You realize, remember, maybe you haven't heard this before, but there is only one race. There's a common uh, kind of you know, construction that we think of races and, you know, black and white and all the rest of that. But there is only one race, the human race that descended from Adam and Eve. And all the glorious variation in that race comes from them through their, you know, children and grandchildren down to Noah and his wife and their three sons and all the rest of that. That's where we came from. But there are, we can say, some groupings or ethnicities and people being sinners like they are, if they're in one group, they hate the other group. You know, we have fun with that in a, in a tiny way. You know, we're, you know, Wolverines and, uh, you know, the guys over in Ohio. We don't like them too much, you know. Don't talk about them, right? And, but that's just a fun thing. But then there is the real evil kind of ethnic hatred that is in this world. And it happens because people are, are sinners at heart. And it's never going to go away until the Lord returns and ultimately until heaven bursts onto the scene and there's a, a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. doesn't mean we have to accept it as some kind of you know, okay thing. It's not okay. We work against it, but we know that it's always going to be there. Like we'll always have the poor with us. All are sinners and there's no way around that. Well... In any case, dogs, they referred to them as dogs, and it was this kind of ethnic or racial uh, epithet. Dogs were lower on the scale than humanity. They were disposable, you know, literal dogs I'm talking about. And so when they referred to people as that, you know what they thought of them. But here Paul is turning the phrase and using it to refer to Jewish false teachers. Uh, Isaiah 56, 10, and 11 calls false teachers or false prophets by the term dogs. You can look that up as well. So it seems that these people were following Paul's footsteps, trying to gain a following for themselves. And, and some of them, if not most of them, believed actually the false doctrines that they were promoting. They really believe, like today, that people believe today, I have to keep the law of God to be pleasing to him. They've been deceived. They have been deceived. Now, these were Judaizers, as we call them, not antinomians. Let me mention antinomians believe that once you're saved by grace, you can pretty much just live how you want. You can always be forgiven. You know, just go to the confessional kind of thing, get it dealt with, and then go on and live your life. However, that's not Christianity. That's called antinomianism, against, against the law, if you will, and not in the sense of legalism, but against you know, God's commands. We know Paul's context in this context is focusing on Judaizers, though, because he uses this phrase mutilation, the cutters. And what were they? Well, they believed, again, you must follow the Jewish law to be saved and or sanctified. They're legalists in the true sense of the term. What I, what I mean by that? Today, people throw out legalism as a, you know, it's just a word that you basically anybody that is to the right of you who believes in some standard you don't believe, you just call them a legalist, and that makes you feel better because now you know you're okay. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, people who have a standard say they, they believe that uh, you know, they shouldn't partake in alcohol, for instance, like I do. That doesn't mean that I think that you have to believe that in order to be saved. I think that's a wise choice. That's something that keeps us from error, keeps us from, from sin. Um, but that doesn't make me a legalist. A biblical legalist is one who believes in keeping of law to please God, either initially to gain merit and favor with him to be saved or in an ongoing way that you're, uh, you earn merit with God by 
by keeping the law, in particular the law of Moses. These were legalists, these Judaizers, in the true sense of the term. They were not adherents to biblical Judaism. Okay, I hope you'll see the difference here. Biblical Judaism is the Old Testament system of faith as laid out in the Bible. Nor were they actually adherents purely of Pharisaic Judaism. That's what you think of when you think of the Pharisees and hypocrisy and all the Old Testament or the, the New Testament gospel stuff where the, the Pharisees were you know, hounding the Lord all the time. They were not adherents to either of those, but to a new version of Judaism couched in Christian terminology. It was a derivation of the Pharisaic Judaism, but they added Christian language to it, kind of added Christ to their obedience to the law and, and wanted to have kind of both things together. Now I'm kind of going over something quickly, which we could spend a lot of time on, this relationship of us to the law of Moses. But suffice it to say for now, Paul says you're under, not under law, but you're under what? You're under grace, okay? We could not keep the law of Moses. We could not keep any code of God perfectly. The only thing we can do is trust in Jesus Christ who kept God's righteousness perfectly for us, and in him we fulfill that law. <clears throat> so Paul says, beware of these people. We have them today, my friends. We have the Hebrew Roots Movement, which has been a constant source of, of uh, a prick in my side because I've gotten these comments on the website you know, all the time about the messages that I gave a few months ago and how people just dislike what I said there as I uh, exposed this false sect that believes in the keeping of the law and so on. But we, and we have other versions of that as well. We have all kinds of people who still believe that you do good works in order to gain your entrance into heaven. They don't listen to the scriptures that say that's impossible to do that. So Paul then says, okay, in that light, know your Christian identity. Know who you are in Christ. That will help you beware of these people. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, verse 3, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, we're going to run out of time here this morning, but let me go over at least the beginning of this. The people who are true believers, he says to them in Philippi, are the real circumcision. Now, what does this mean? This is very important for your overall view of the Bible. They share in the faith of Abraham and have the circumcision of the heart. Did you know there is such a thing as a circumcision of the heart? Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse number 16. It says this. Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse number 6. These are two verses I'd encourage you to just at least remember where they are in your Bible about this matter of circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. In the Old Testament, physical circumcision was not the most important thing. But many, many, many people think that it was. Like that was the thing. What was physical circumcision in the Old Testament anyways? What was the meaning of it? Well, turn your Bibles to Romans, please. Turn it to Romans and chapter 4. It's going to tell us exactly what the sign of circumcision was all about in Romans chapter 4 and verse number 11. Now we're talking about physical circumcision of the male. What was that about? Romans 4, 11. Well, let me back up to verse number uh, 9. Does this blessedness, that's the blessedness of sins forgiven, does that come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say, this is again physical circumcision, for we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Paul answers his own question. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. If you go back and look in Genesis, 
chapter 15, verse 6, says that Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. That's before chapter 17 when circumcision was instituted. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision. Here it is. It's a sign of what? A seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that's Gentiles, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. Okay, so the scriptures tell us very clearly that circumcision in Abraham was a sign of the faith that he previously exercised in God. That's all it was. It wasn't you get circumcised in order to be saved. It was you got circumcised because you were supposed to have the faith of Abraham already. It's just like today. You know, salvation and then good works. But people want to always reverse the two and say, you got to do good works in order to get salvation. Perish it. Be done with it. The Bible is so clear that salvation does not come from good works. In the same way in the Old Testament, salvation could not come through circumcision. It came through faith in God. And in today, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the condition. Faith alone saves. So, Paul's talking about circumcision, talking actually about heart circumcision, not, you know, regardless of external markings on the body. You are, he says, we are the circumcision. We've been cleansed from sin. We have spiritual life, regardless of whether we have the markings of the covenant with Abraham. God sees the heart and desires the heart to match the meaning of the external symbol of physical circumcision. Saved Gentiles are just like saved Jews because they share heart circumcision, regardless of physical sign on the outside of the body. They might not share that bodily circumcision, but that's no matter. Abraham was imputed righteousness from God before he was circumcised. All right, so again, circumcision was a sign of the righteousness by faith. The Judaizers had a righteousness by works, by works. So their sign, their circumcision, external circumcision, was a sign of their doctrine. It's kind of like if you believe that by going into the waters of baptism, my sins will be washed away and now I'll be on my way to heaven. You've misused the same symbol that we use to attach it to another doctrine. When we baptize somebody, hopefully we will soon, some young people, we're saying this is, does not save you, it does not wash away the sins of the flesh, it doesn't wash away the sins of the, uh, uh, inside of you. It can't. What happens to you when you get baptized is you get wet. Okay? When you're baptized, though, what you're saying is symbolically, I've died with Christ and I'm rising to a new life because I already did. And I'm telling the church, I'm with you people, because that happened to me when I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the symbol. But if you go into the water and say to yourself, oh, I'm glad I'm washing all my sins away, and I'm being regenerated now, you are misusing the sign of baptism, just like these people were misusing the sign of circumcision to mean a different doctrine. Okay, so we want to be clear about what we're talking about. Um, be careful to understand, Paul's not saying that, you know, real circumcision, you know, that heart circumcision means that Gentiles become Jews. That's not what we're talking. We're not talking about a spiritual Israel. We're not talking about Gentiles replacing Israel, becoming the church somehow, uh, the, the spiritual Israel becoming the church. Instead, he's saying that Christians have the real spiritual circumcision. And now get this, you ask yourself, what, what is this pastor talking about? spiritual circumcision. What does that mean? Well, can I give it to you in New Testament language? This is precisely what it means. Regeneration. Regeneration. When God changes the heart from the heart of stone to what? You know it. The heart of flesh. Ezekiel 11 and 36 talk about God taking out the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. Hard against God when we begin 
He softens our heart, makes us to believe in Him, cuts away the hard-heartedness of our sin. This is the meaning of the circumcision of the heart. You have to be regenerated. In other words, to say it in the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, you must be born again. If you're going to see the kingdom of God, you have to be regenerated. You have to be given new spiritual life. Your heart has to be circumcised. Men and women have to be circumcised in that way, in their hearts, in order to be right with God. Okay? Um, Analogous to baptism, again, the real important kind of baptism is what we call spirit baptism. I went over this with the young people. Spirit baptism is that action of the Spirit of God by which he puts us into Christ and into the body of Christ. That happens the moment we're saved. Water baptism is in part a symbol of that spirit baptism. Okay? All physical circumcision would be, would be a sign of the heart circumcision that's supposed to have happened in a person. We're talking about an adult being circumcised here. This is what the Judaizers wanted. If you're an adult Gentile coming to faith, you've got to be circumcised um, into their doctrine, into their belief system. No, that's not right. So we're out of time, but we'll see next time that Paul describes now true believers who are this real circumcision. They do three things. They worship God in the Spirit. They rejoice in Christ Jesus, and they have no confidence in the flesh. And oh, I wish I could just go on because I would love to do so, but I'll respect your time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that we have learned today again about the doctrine of spiritual heart circumcision, that is regeneration. And we thank you that we've been made aware that there are people out there still vying for our attention, trying to get us to add things to the gospel to add works or law-keeping or whatever to Christ's work in order to make merit before God. And we know that that is all false. It's dangerous. It's deadly. It's making disciples of the wrong thing. And I pray you'd help us to stay away from it and stay on the right path, on the true doctrine that you have given to us. Help us to know that salvation as Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, is not of works, lest any man should boast. But we are saved by grace through faith. And of course, we're saved unto good works. But we're not saved by those good works. Help us to understand that and grasp that that any one of us here today who does not maybe know yet the Lord Jesus Christ may come to Him and acknowledge that we are sinners, believe that He died and rose again from the dead, that He is the Son of God, and call upon Him and be saved by confessing our sins, by asking Him to wash us, by believing into Him, by, as Paul says, confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in our hearts that you have raised him from the dead, if we do, that the Bible promises we would be saved. May that be true in each and every one listening to this message today. In Christ's name, amen.